Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 26 of Discovering the Old Testament. This week, we are going to look at the negative fallout from the reign of King Solomon and his son and successor, King Rehoboam. Last time, we discussed the glories of King Solomon, many of which came with a very large price tag, literally and figuratively. Like many successful kings of that age, Solomon engaged in a very ambitious program of building projects apart from the temple. All that costs money and lots of it, which Solomon raised through heavy taxation. It also demanded a sizable labor force, which included Israelites pressed into service as part of forced labor gangs. Solomon also had built and maintained a large military force. Although they did not see a lot of action, their presence helped keep in line some smaller kingdoms conquered by Solomon's father, David. Solomon's worship and support for foreign deities didn't help his image much either with the home crowd. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and pretty much right away things started to go downhill. The tribal leaders took Solomon's death as an opportunity to agitate for some changes in how things were done, especially in the area of taxation, as well as other policies. Rehoboam traveled to the northern city of Shechem to meet with tribal leaders, but the meeting didn't go well. Rehoboam refused to change any of his father's policies. The ten northern tribes, concluding that they really didn't have a stake in the kingdom anymore, decided to break away and form their own kingdom, which they called Israel. The remaining two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, made up the southern kingdom of Judah. From a tactical standpoint, there really wasn't much Judah could do to stop the breakaway, apart from persuasion or some other political solution. Israel had much more territory, a much larger population, and their land was very rich and fertile. While Judah was much smaller, it was more isolated and well protected by mountains from stronger powers to the east. The new king of Israel was Jeroboam, who had been the chief of Solomon's forced labor gangs before he rebelled and sided with the north. One of his first tasks was to shape a new national identity for the fledgling monarchy. In ancient terms, that means creating a center of worship and government that would replace the role and authority exercised by Jerusalem. He designated the cities of Dan and Bethel for this purpose. Both of these cities had very, very old shrine centers that were already steeped in tradition. In addition, Jeroboam had two golden calves made, one for each shrine. Now, immediately when you hear this, you will at once think of the golden calf that caused all that trouble at the encampment of Sinai. I mentioned at that time that it was probably a representation of an old Canaanite god, probably some variant of El. However, these calves appear to have served a different function. We have some iconography from this period that shows images of other gods, notably the storm god Hadad, standing on top of a bull while he wields his lightning bolts. In this instance, the bull acts as a throne for Hadad, or Yahweh, 
a counter to the function of the Ark of the Covenant as God's throne. How do we know that these bulls or calves were not deities as such? Apart from the iconographic evidence, the prophets who worked and preached in the northern kingdom during this time, such as Hosea, Amos, Elijah, and Elisha, none of them criticize these particular shrines as centers of pagan worship. Given that these men were not shy about raising such points, this tends to reinforce the idea that Bethel and Dan were in fact shrines to Yahweh. However, later prophets, such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, did make the charge of idolatry. However, they were writing centuries after the fact. Jeroboam continued to polish the national pride of the north by repairing and fortifying other cities that were of deep cultural and historic significance, notably Shechem and Penuel. These were cities where Jacob, the ancestor of the Israelite tribes, had lived. The history of the northern kingdom was turbulent and colorful, which is to say it's more fun reading about it than it would have been to live through it. The northern kingdom lasted 200 years, from its founding in 922 BCE through 722 BCE, when it fell to the Assyrians. Along the way, there was nearly constant warfare. Between skirmishes and disputes with Judah, there were uprisings of the subject Moabites, a rising and aggressive new power in the Aramean kingdom centered at Damascus, and the growth of the Assyrian military machine. The northern kingdom was frequently at war. Internal struggles took their toll as well. A number of Israel's kings were assassinated. Israel also did not enjoy the protection of geographic barriers to invasion, as Judah did. One problem we have from a historical standpoint is that the history found in the books of kings was written in Judah, so the assessment of the northern kings is not complementary. As with their own kings, Judah's primary criterion of excellence rested on how well a king did or didn't follow the ways of God, with David as the standard. In the case of the northern kingdom, the number of good kings was, well, zero. To be fair, the southern kings don't fare very well either. Only Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah are considered faithful kings. Kings follows a formula when noting when each king came to power. For the northern kings, the date of their reign is given based on the regnal year of whoever was sitting on the throne of Judah at that time. The formula generally includes the length of the reign, whether the king was good or bad, which is to say bad. Then there is occasionally some mention of a notable event or two from the king's administration, followed by his death, where he was buried, and who succeeded him. Another thing we find in some of these brief summaries of the reigns of both Israel and Judah's kings is a little note that runs something like this one, from 1 Kings 16, verse 27. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he performed, and the might he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? In case you're wondering, this would not be the book of Chronicles in our Bibles, which was written much, much later. This refers to another book, which is now lost to us. In fact, Kings mentions many such books that are no longer extant. A good thing to remember if you are tempted to think that the Bible is a complete, comprehensive record. 
One last note about the format in which the books of kings record the reigns of rulers. For kings of Judah, the text usually mentions who each king's mother was. This was in order to track those families that had intermarried into the house of David. The dynastic nature of Judah's royal court gave them a strong sense of national identity and continuity, made even stronger by the covenant that was believed to ensure that dynasty's survival. It also argues that, at the highest levels of the Judean court, women held more authority and honor than we hear of elsewhere. Just as David is the gold standard of righteousness for Judah's kings, the author of Kings has a negative standard of behavior for the northern kings, which is Jeroboam, the very first king of Israel. But while Jeroboam was definitive for Israel's kings behaving badly, other kings defined the north kingdom in different ways. The first of these came to power 46 years after the schism with Judah. His name was Omri. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about him. His name is either Amorite or Arabic. It's difficult to tell, but it is not a conventional Hebrew name. This suggests that he was a foreigner, possibly a mercenary, since he was a commander in the king's army. The archaeological record has helped to fill in the gap somewhat. Taken together, the total record is one of a very dynamic and powerful ruler who accomplished quite a lot in his relatively short seven-year reign. We need to start during the reign of King Elah, who ruled for only one year, from 877 to 876 BCE. His reign was cut short, literally, when one of his top commanders, Zimri, assassinated Elah in his own palace in the city of Tirzah and took the throne. When Omri's men heard about the coup, they not only rejected Zimri's claim to kingship, they proclaimed Omri as king. Not being one to pass up an opportunity, Omri and his men marched on Terza and laid siege to the city. Soon it became clear that Zimri's days were numbered, and, rather than face surrender and the ensuing consequences, he committed suicide by burning his own palace down around him. Omri had to spend another year or so dealing with another rival by the name of Tibni, but since Omri had possession of what was then the capital, he managed to consolidate his power. The Bible says little else about him, but it does mention that he set up a new capital at Samaria. This remained the political center of Israel until its fall in 722 BCE. But we have another document that mentions Omri, and that is the inscription of King Mesha of Moab, otherwise known as the Moabite Stone. This was a victory inscription on a basalt stele discovered back in the 19th century. The victory in question is one that Mesha claims to have won over the Israelites, taking back the land of Medeba in northern Moab that had originally been seized by Omri. This is located east of the Jordan. Mesha reclaimed this territory during the reign of Omri's grandson, Joam. 
Omri created a dynasty that lasted for 45 years, which was the second longest dynasty of the kings of Israel. But it was also a defining dynasty. Much later, in the 8th and 9th centuries, Assyrian military chronicles would still refer to Israel in terms of King Omri. King Jehu came rather later and was not part of the Omrid dynasty. In fact, he was instrumental in destroying the Omrids. But the Assyrian chronicle of Shalmaneser III mentions receiving tribute from Jehu, son of Omri. Another inscription on an Assyrian stele called the Black Obelisk also mentions the tribute of Jehu, son of Omri. Finally, over a hundred years after the last Omrid king, the annals of King Tiglath-Pileser III, one of Assyria's most prolific conquerors, refers to Israel as Omri land. Omri's siege of Terza has also been confirmed by archaeological excavations during the late forties and through the fifties. The evidence shows that the city was burned about the time we have for Omri. The destruction layer for this event is impressive, up to a meter thick in places. A destruction layer consists mostly of, well, destruction. Burned remains, rubble, sometimes human remains, and so on. It appears that the city was abandoned for a little while, then reconstructed, probably under the Omri's administration. Excavations at Omri's capital of Samaria also uncovered a royal citadel on the top of the hill dominating the city. The citadel was fortified by two walls, one built by Omri, the other by his son Ahab. Omri's wall was about 1.6 meters thick and enclosed a rectangle of about 89 by 178 meters, which comes to about four acres. The wall was built out of very fine cut and dressed stones fitted together with great precision. It's still one of the finest examples of this kind of architecture ever discovered in Palestine. Omri had all the hallmarks of what we would call a successful king. He was an able administrator, he expanded Israel's borders and held foreign enemies in check, both through military force and, apparently, through diplomatic skill. He sired an heir, Ahab, who ruled for nineteen years. His building projects were impressive, and he accumulated considerable wealth. But the authors of kings remained unimpressed. Their standards were not those of normal politics, and Omri gets the Jeroboam seal of disapproval from the Judean authors. This raises a point that we need to keep in mind when reading historical texts like Kings. This is history with a purpose, a purpose of making a point, and pretty much everything is subordinated to that purpose. That's why it's unwise to try to extract too much historical information out of the Bible without also looking at archaeological material as well. At the same time, one must also respect the agenda around which the text is written. Speaking of Ahab, and we definitely should, to modern readers he is probably even better known than his father, but less well known than his Phoenician wife, Jezebel. She was the daughter of King Ethbaal of Tyre. She gets the credit or blame for turning Ahab away from the worship of Yahweh, although since Omri wasn't exactly a paragon of religious orthodoxy, it's unclear why Ahab would have been a devoted Yahwist. 
but it's certainly not impossible. Jezebel's influence on her husband was enough to get him to turn to Baal and Asherah, which we discussed a few podcasts ago. Unfortunately for us, we don't have much in the way of external documentation for Jezebel. Her name is Phoenician for the phrase, Where is the Prince?, which was a ritual cry uttered during ceremonies related to Baal during that part of the year when he was believed to be consigned to the underworld. Jezebel is also credited with supporting large numbers of Baalist prophets. Ahab, however, is another story. We do have external material for him. Once again, we have the Assyrian records to thank for this. Shalmaneser III met a coalition of rulers from several nations, including Israel, at the Battle of Karkar in 853 BCE. His record of the battle specifically mentions Ahab, but as a land, i.e. the land of Ahab, as one of the combatants. Ahab apparently brought a sizable force of chariots and infantry to the fight. Naturally, the Assyrian king claimed that he won the battle, but he returned home shortly thereafter and had to send several expeditions to this region in the years that followed, so it's probably fair to say that the Assyrian victory was not as conclusive as Shalmaneser would have wished. Meanwhile, back at Samaria, Ahab and Jezebel were looking to get into real estate. This story appears in 1 Kings 21, in which Ahab wanted to purchase the vineyard of Naboth, either outright for cash or in trade for a better one. Naboth refused, which makes sense since it was a family inheritance and Naboth simply didn't want to let go of it. Ahab was not pleased by this, so Jezebel took matters into her own hands and concocted evidence that Naboth was guilty of blasphemy, for which the town authorities had him stoned to death. At this point, Ahab was free to take the vineyard, which he did. This act of murder, for the sake of grabbing another man's property, was considered cause for the eradication of Ahab's line. It was also sufficient to attract the attention of one of the most dynamic prophetic figures in the Old Testament, Elijah the Tishbite. We'll talk more about him and his story next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.